the context here of chapter 6, if you look back, you'll see in chapter 1, Paul is talking about there should be no divisions among you as brothers and sisters in Christ. There's not a bunch of camps. There's not the Paul camp and the Apollos camp and the Cephas camp. You are one in Christ, so, so get along with one another. And then in chapter 2, he gets into a discussion of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals God's thoughts to us so that we can have the mind of Christ instead of the wisdom of this age way of living. Chapter 3, he again talks about there should be no divisions in the church, that we are spiritual people, not merely human. And then in verse 16, he tees up with an idea that is going to carry out here in chapter 6. Do you not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? As we get to this topic of our sexuality, we need to have that in mind. If I start to think that this is my temple built to worship me, my pleasures, my desires, my wishes, when in actuality it's a temple of God's spirit, I'm going to end up in a very wrong path in terms of intimacy, sexuality, and an idea of who I really am and what my identity is. Chapter 4, Paul urges the Corinthian believers and God's spirit speaks to us today, calling us to become like a child, following the godly example that God has brought into our lives of other more spiritually mature believers that he has blessed us with. People like here for the Corinthians, Paul and Timothy, who were able to give an example to the Corinthian believers of how do you make progress on this journey of fighting against sin and surrendering to Jesus, putting on that mind of Christ. Talks about the, the risk of being arrogant where it, it's, it's a way of living that not only lives over here in the, the wisdom of this age, following whatever your belly desires, but then justifies it and rationalizes, rationalizes it and even values and prioritizes it, takes pride in that. Says, no, this is a good thing. This is where we want to be. And that arrogance is a way that your talk and your walk can break from alignment. You can say one thing, but then have your actual power, your actual life force and energy, but be directed in a whole different direction. And in chapter 5, Paul makes a very, uh, he ties that theory right into a practical situation happening there and right, right there in Corinth where there was uh, what he calls sexual immorality happening there in the church in Corinth and it was being condoned by the church. So the example there in chapter 5 is of a man who was having relationships, sexual relationships with his stepmom. And this was not just a man from Corinth. It was a man from the church there in Corinth. And the rest of the church stood idly by, maybe just kind of looked the other way, maybe condoned it. We don't know exactly, but there was arrogance involved in the relationship toward this sin issue and the response of the church there in Corinth. Paul gave some pretty stern instructions there in chapter 5 about that very issue. And now as we get into chapter 6, there's again a, a discussion of uh, you know, if there's to be unity in the church, how could there be a lawsuit between believers? Seriously, we're going to take a dispute between us to a secular court and have them render judgment in disputes between believers? And then he gets into this topic of sexual holiness. In verse 12, let's read together. He begins by refuting some of the half-truths 
that the Corinthians believed. So there's a couple of quotations here that then Paul responds to from a correct theological perspective. So here's a couple of the, the beliefs that they had there in Corinth. All things are lawful for me. Paul says, but not all things are helpful. Again, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Another quote. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The picture here that Paul is confronting the Corinthians with in their rationalizations, their ideas, the the popular wisdom of their day is this truth. You are created for the glory of God. It's really a reminder of Genesis 1 and 2 to the Corinthian believers. Okay, you, you've, uh, you've now, you're so into the grace uh, movement that you're saying, hey, there is no law for those who are in Christ Jesus. All things are lawful for me, and yet they were taking that to an excess, and Paul corrects that. He says, true, but not all things are helpful, and some of those things that you are no longer under the law because of could lead to a snare that brings you back to a place of slavery. So don't use your freedom from the law as a justification for something that will end up being unhelpful and will be a snare to you and enslave you. Don't live for your belly. Don't be enslaved and ensnared by unhelpful things. And there's a reminder to each of us that there is a clear blueprint that the designer has for you. There's a plan. There's a template. He's a good architect. All that he makes is good. In fact, on those days of creation, at each moment of creation, God said, it is good, it is good, it is very good. He had a plan for you, and he still has that good plan. So your specifications, if you pull that blueprint out and you read it, your body, it's not meant for sexual immorality. Your body is meant for the Lord. All that you are is meant to glorify God. Jesus himself gives this instruction, quoting from the Old Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with every dimension of who you are, you belong to him. Now you could take that blueprint, roll it up, throw it in a closet somewhere and say, I'm gonna choose my own adventure. I'm gonna decide what to do with certain parts and aspects of my person. And maybe you've been guilty of doing that in the area of who you are as a sexual being. That's a pretty popular idea in our culture today. That your sexuality is is one component of who you are that's not actually intended to glorify God. Instead, it's a way for you to express yourself. It's a way for you to uh, create identity. It's a way for you to experience pleasure. It's a way for you to reproduce. And all of those are half-truths that Paul would confront with the reality that, no, all of who you are is created for the glory of God. Every aspect of your being. He ties this in 
And maybe that verse 14 jumps out at you as a strange verse to include in a passage about sexual holiness versus sexual immorality. But he reminds the Corinthians, and God's Spirit is reminding us today, of that resurrection hope. Verse 14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Remember the resurrection that is to come for you. Remember that you are an eternal being. And then live in light of that reality. Your sexuality, your bodies, your minds, all of your energies, the path of your life, living in light of this reality of the risen Savior. You're not a slave to sin. Jesus is raised from the dead. The same God who raised him from the dead is at work within you. You're not trapped in that old leaven of malice and evil that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Instead, that path to the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth is opened to you because of Christ, our Passover lamb. And that's why we're going to celebrate communion today. So remember that future resurrection. Treat your body accordingly. And really, when it comes to those choices that will confront all of us, of living in this way of human understanding, pursuing the things that we desire, or surrendering to God and glorifying Him, we need to ask ourselves this question. Will this action, will this decision, will this thing I allow into my eyes or into my heart or into my mind, will it help me to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength more, will it prepare me for Christ's return or not? And really, doesn't that make those decisions easier? Right? All the other confusion that comes in from our culture, like some of the beliefs that they had there in Corinth, when it comes down to the resurrection hope that we have, it's a pretty simple decision. Is this going to increase my love for Jesus, help me to look more like him, help me to be more prepared for his return or not? That's a good practice when it comes to being sanctified, to being conformed to the image of Christ. You were created for the greater glory of God. And then Paul goes on really to say that in verse 15 and following, if you deviate from that design, from that blueprint, you're going to be left unfulfilled, empty, hurting yourself and hurting others. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That word, uh, that phrase that we're seeing repeated here a few times in this passage and elsewhere, porneia. 
porneia. It sounds like an English word that we have. Pornography. So that would be the graphic representation of this word porneia. And it's really a kind of sex that's over here in this category of living, the Genesis 3 way of living, where it's all about me, my desires, my lusts, what I can take from someone else, uh, a, a transactional view of intimacy and relationships. And it's in contrast to this picture of sexual holiness that God is upholding that was a part of our DNA at creation that God said it is good, it is good, it is very good. And that word prostitute here really in the Greek is just a person. It's that word porneia but applied to a person. A pornein. So it's a person who is in this category of sexuality, an unholy sexuality versus sexual holiness. A kind of sexuality that cannot be used to worship God, but instead really it's worshiping the other kinds of lowercase g God that we set up, namely me, ourselves, right? That's really what Adam and Eve got into in that choice to take that fruit is they're saying, we know better than God. We'd like to cut him out of the equation. Go to him for knowledge of good and evil? No thanks. We'll take and eat that ourselves. We don't want to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We'd like to have direct knowledge of that ourselves. Let's take a bite. Setting themselves up as God's lowercase g. And Paul is saying that down that path, there's a, an acknowledgement of that wiring schematic that the Creator gave you. But it's as if you're now trying to hack that. You're trying to uh, modify that on your own. You're saying, I know better than what the Creator designed me for. I'm going to modify this in a way. And the real risk is that the plan that God had that's spelled out in Genesis 2.24, it still works in this distorted view of sexuality. What did God say to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.24? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one. So there's that leaving, that cleaving, and that becoming one that's a part of the designer's plan. It's a part of your wiring schematic. And when you try to take that and hack it and modify it and say, well, I'm going to leave God out of my sexuality, you still get the leaving and the cleaving and the becoming one, but now it's in a very dangerous, destructive way that's going to ripple out to affect your life and your future relationships and our world. That's the way that sin works. The design was really beautiful. Think about how complex we are as beings. The circulatory system, the vascular system, the digestive, excretory, muscular, skeletal, nervous system, all these components of who we are, not just scientific, because you can't look at someone's emotions and psyche and heart and feelings under a microscope. There's these complex physical and non-physical parts of who we are, all created for the glory of God. And when it comes to sex, God had a good plan. He said, I'm going to combine in a, in a powerful way all of the chemicals and hormones floating through your bloodstream, all of the neural pathways that are hardened in your brain over the years of intimacy with that spouse so that the pleasure that you mutually give and receive will last throughout a lifetime and cement that relationship with that one that you have left mom and dad for. You've 
cleave to that other one, and then you begin this process of becoming one that starts on your wedding day. God had a good plan. And that way, as she gets older and more wrinkly, and his hair starts falling out, it doesn't matter because you've got a lifetime of memories that have demonstrated, reflected, and produced intimacy in that marriage. And that was God's design. But what happens if you try to hack that system? And you go, well, you know, let's just go for the hormones, the chemicals, the thrill, the pleasure, the lust. Let's go for a different kind of sexuality that takes advantage of all the good parts of that, but it leaves out the the stuff like commitment. You know, the for better and for worse stuff. Let's just go for the better, the for richer, and the in-health parts and leave out all the other negative parts. Let's let's, Let's leave out the part where I give and let's just get the part where I get to take. And really, what's the harm of something like pornography? Really, who's the victim here? Just two different people taken from each other, right? Uh, What about prostitution? I mean, it's just an exchange of, you know, somebody gets some money, somebody else gets some pleasure. There's no victims, right? Wrong. With that justification and those ideas that our world has, we've created now a world where there's things like human trafficking, prostitution, broken marriages, memories and neural pathways that are hardened and fixed towards all kinds of different people and which make real intimacy in marriage very difficult, impossible apart from the work of God in a person's heart making them new. God designed this beautiful, unifying, sexual part of who you are to only work within the covenant relationship of marriage. He spells it out in Genesis chapter 2. What's, your, what's the blueprint? What's the schematic? What's the plan of the creator? One man, one woman, together for a lifetime. And if we forgot what we were really created for, Paul reminds us in verse 17, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. When your sexuality begins there, it will develop in a beautiful way. When your heart, your mind, your soul, all the energy that you have is directed toward being joined together with the Lord above all else. And you bring two believers into a marriage that are both focused on that primary goal, they're able to really have intimacy with one another as well. And if we do anything less than what he created us for, with any aspect of who we are, including who we are sexually, we will be left unfulfilled, searching. That high that we, you know, that satisfied us last week will not satisfy us this week and will be brought deeper and deeper down this path of sin and the lies that it offers to us. Your sexuality is not primarily about your pleasure. It's not primarily about your self-expression or your needs or desires. It's not even about your reproduction. We see here that you were created to live for God and for others, including who you are sexually. We're called to flee from sexual immorality. That 
in my mind, reminds me of Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Here's a guy with an opportunity. Good-looking young man, living in a, a palace, in a position of power. Potiphar, the ruler of Egypt, able to have his pick of any of the uh, ladies there in Egypt. I'm guessing his wife was probably the most attractive woman in the region. And she's going after Joseph. What does Joseph do as she grabs a hold of his coat and says, come lie with me? He flees. He gets out of there. He wriggles himself out of that coat, leaves her hanging onto the coat as he bolts out of there. And she then uses that against him and states some lies about Joseph. But he's a great example of of what we're called to do. Flee from sexual immorality. Some of us need to take this to heart. There are some temptations and some opportunities before you right now. Maybe some steps that you've taken in that direction. And the thing with uh, an affair is you don't just all of a sudden find yourself there one day. There's a lot of uh, doors that you have to push through to get to that place, that action, that decision. There's a, and, there, and there are doors that are those scary doors you know, with the, uh, the red panel that says, do not push here, alarm will sound. And we've pushed through a few of those and we get a few exit doors into this process before we're confronted with the decision from which it's very hard to recover in a marriage. Flee from sexual immorality. You don't belong to you. You do not exercise independent, autonomous authority over your own life. And if you choose that path, it's a path that leads to pain. Instead, you belong to God. You were created to glorify Him. You are not your own. You were designed to glorify God and to live for others, to bless, to serve, to give, to create, and so to glorify God. And that includes every part of who you are. How do you do that? How do you, how do you move away from that choice of sexual immorality and move towards sexual holiness in practice? Well, I think number one, Paul tells us here, flee. There's times when you need to remove yourself from the temptation, as Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. Get out of there. And there, there may be a coworker, there may be a friendship, there may be an online contact that you have that you need to just delete, unfriend, have one final conversation with, and flee and get out of there. It could affect your career opportunities. So what? The choice also affects your eternity. So make the choice that will lead you to glorifying God. Flee. Get yourself out of there. There's times that you need to remove the temptation from yourself. So there's times when you need to remove yourself from the temptation. There's also times when you need to remove the temptation from yourself. I don't have mine in my pocket today, but most of you probably have a digital device that connects you with every form of sexual immorality known throughout all of time. Some of you may need to take a hammer when you get home and smash that thing, pull the SIM card out and throw it in a dumb phone and so remove the temptation from yourself. Yes, you have to push that number three times to get that first letter of the text message. Your friends will learn to call you instead. It will be fine. Remove the temptation from yourself. There's a good uh, series of books by some Christian authors Started out with Every Man's Battle. 
Went to every young man's battle, every woman's battle. They got a battle for everybody. And it's applying in practical ways, how do you live with sexual holiness, living by God's word, and avoid the temptations that we all face. None of us are exempt from these temptations and challenges. One of the things they talk about, guys, is bouncing your eyes. When you've got an opportunity to lock onto that female who's maybe in a compromising position, instead bounce your eyes and just look up at the ceiling. The rest of us will know what's going on. Okay? They talk about starving the sumo. The picture there is that God has given you a sex drive as a gift. And yes, it's a struggle. And yes, there's a reality, but it's something that by God's grace and with God's strength, that sex drive is about the same size as you. So you have a chance in the struggle against sin by God's grace every day. You're not going to be forced to give in, but the problem is that we have fed our sex drive a fatty diet of sexual imagery, sexual meditation. We've allowed our minds and our hearts to dwell And whereas temptation should be kind of like a a fly that's buzzing around our heads, we've let it be like a bird that's built a nest right on top of our brains. And by that fatty diet towards our sex drives could be the, the, the steamy romance novels, the movies that we allow ourselves to be entertained by, where we allow our gaze to fall, the things we dwell on. We've now bloated that sex drive to the place where it's about the size of a sumo wrestler. Picture a large, half-naked Japanese man wearing a diaper. And now you're in the ring with that kind of a sex drive. You have no chance at this point. You are going to choose the path of sexual immorality if that's the path that you've been building. If instead of uh, tapping into the Spirit of God, which has appeared to all men and teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion, instead of that, you've been going, I'm just going to feed my sex drive whatever it wants. When the decision comes and Potiphar's wife is there grabbing your coat, there's no way you'll be able to say no. King David, he should have gone to the war, to the war with the rest of the guys. He should have had a solid block wall built up to obstruct the view from his balcony. You know, maybe up to about this high so he could just see the sunset. But instead, he had this opportunity to gaze down on an attractive neighbor lady. And one bad decision led to the next, and there was death and pain and broken relationships, and it rippled out to affect his family because of that choice to sin. Be a clueless dork. Okay, if you have an attractive female, guys, who's giving you some attention, winking at you, kind of giving that knowing glance, just give her a clueless, I have, no, I have absolutely no idea. I'm just a dumb dork with no clue as to what you're doing. Okay, bye-bye now. Ladies, the same with you. Don't play along with that. That's a dangerous path to go down. Flee from sexual immorality. Remember that you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. You don't belong to you.
Now Paul applies this whole idea of sexual holiness to marriage as we get to the first five verses of chapter 7. Let's read together. Concerning the matters about which you wrote. So this is referring to a letter that Paul had received from the believers there in Corinth. They had said, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul brings a counterpoint to that. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And he goes on to get very practical. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So we're reminded here in chapter 7, sexual holiness is God's design. And sexual immorality is the temptation we all face. How do we work that out in marriage? I think we, we talk about it. We're honest about it. It's a becoming one. It's a process that involves the body of Christ. It's one of these taboo subjects that we're not often willing to talk to one another about and allow each other in. But I think if we're really members of Christ's body, if he's the head, if there's different members of the body, it's appropriate to bring in another believer if there are issues of sexual immorality or maybe declining sexual intimacy in marriage. Paul's addressing that here in chapter 7. And there is hope and there is help and there is regeneration and there's the reality of the resurrection and it affects all parts of we are, including who we are sexually. So don't struggle and suffer alone in this hopeless pattern. But instead, go to God's word, go to the body of Christ and experience transformation in your marriage and in your sexual intimacy as a couple. What about, so if if those are the two options, either sexual holiness or sexual immorality, what about a believer who gives up the fight against sin? and just chooses to serve the God of sexual immorality. What do you do? Well, Paul lays that out in chapter 5, and we see in verse 9 through 11, here's what he says. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Then he clarifies. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. If you thought I was saying don't don't have anything to do with anyone who's sexually immoral, you would have to leave the planet. That's not what I was saying, Corinthian believers. But now, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler. In other words, If there's someone among you who says, I'm a believer, but I serve the God of fill in the sin, sexual immorality, idolatry, Paul's saying those two don't line up. Either you pursue the path of holiness, 
you fight against sin and you are being transformed to align to the image of Christ. You're submitting yourself to the way of the Spirit. Or, or there's another path and it's another option, but you're not a believer at that point. Paul says, don't associate with that person. And the plan, even for the example that he uses there in chapter 5 in Corinth, of a believer who has had sexual relationships with his stepmom, the end goal of that cutting off and having nothing to do with not even eating with, the end goal, the end desire is that that person may be brought to God, brought to glorify God, transformed. Paul says in verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He needs to go experience a misery out there in this path of following the desires of his heart, making himself the God, lowercase g, serving the God of this earth, listening to the voice of the devil, guiding him down this path where he sees something that looks good and he takes it and eats it. Let him go experience life in that world. Don't protect him within the body of Christ. Let him go really feel what that is. And when he gets to the end of the rope, his flesh will be destroyed and his spirit man will be built up. He'll be able to glorify God as he was created to. So it's not a plan of let's just be mean, let's be jerks, let's be arrogant, let's be pompous, Let's point fingers. Let's be holier than thou. No, it's a plan of redemption. It's a plan of living in light of the return of Christ, his resurrection, the new earth that he's creating and calling us to be a part of when he comes to consummate his kingdom. God designed sexual intimacy to be a picture of giving love. That's the kind of love God has. For God so loved the world that he gave. That's his plan for our sexuality, and we see a picture in our world of a, of a distortion of sex that's all about taking, when instead it's actually intended and designed to be all about giving. Now the challenge uh, that I face is I'm looking at this story in chapter 5, hearing the, the instructions in chapter 6 and 7. How do you know the difference between a believer who has given up the fight against sin and is serving the God of sexual immorality and a believer who is struggling with sexual immorality, as we all are, according to Paul. In fact, how do you look in the mirror and know which one you are? Well, we know and discern that not by human wisdom, but by God's Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We can tell the difference not by listening to someone's talk, but by their power, their dunamis, their strength, their ability, the evidence, the actions of those professed beliefs. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19. And so this is not something we discern using our human reason, our human intellect, a checklist. Something that God's truth and God's spirit leads us to in terms of is this person a believer who has chosen this path of sin or who is struggling with this draw towards sexual immorality in the process of becoming holy and following after Christ. The fact is, a lot of times, it's hard to tell. So we need to pray. We need to seek God. We need to converse and talk. See if there are signs. How does someone respond to this passage? When you bring it to them, you say, hey, brother, sister in Christ, what's going on in your life? Did you, did you read these verses? 
Tell me about your life and your choices right now and see their response. Is there humility? Is there repentance? Is there a desire to see God at work within our lives? Or is there a stubborn decision to pursue a different path than what God lays out in his word? We need to be reminded of Paul's instructions here in verses 4 and 5. You don't belong to you. You don't get to exercise independent, autonomous authority in your life, and you get to practice that in marriage. So if you're withholding sexual intimacy from your spouse um, till they deserve it, till, you know, till they do what you told them to do, kind of as a power play, Paul's saying that's not a picture of the giving love that God has intended. thing about love is that it must always be offered and given. It can never be forced, demanded, coerced. That was the huge risk that God took when he created male and female in his image. It would have been a lot safer for him to just create a universe based on his power. But instead he took this colossal risk of including his love as the primary attribute that he demonstrated in creation. He said, I'm going to create you for a relationship with me in my image to reflect my glory to all of creation. And along with that invitation to love comes the ability for us to reject that offer. To say, no, we're going to choose to live for self, not for you. We're going to choose to be takers rather than givers. The instructions that Paul gives to husbands and wives there in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, the beginning of that whole section, instructions to wives and to husbands. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The way that works is if you willingly offer submission as the son does to the father. It doesn't work if you go to your wife, husbands, and go, submit to me. And then wives, you're like, verse 21, you submit to me. Okay, that's not how love works. It's given freely, voluntarily. If you, husbands and wives in this room today, have declining sexual intimacy in your marriage right now, I got a few suggestions for you as we close. First thing I would encourage you to look at is your consumption of media and technology. This is, uh, this is common, you know, go read a research paper on this. This is affecting sexuality in the United States of America today. You may need to take a media and technology detox to save your marriage. It could, it could mean downgrading to a dumb phone, deleting your Netflix account, disconnecting the internet from your house, getting back to reading a paper book, maybe out loud together. Having that weekly date time where you sit across with a uh, you know, piece of village inn pie that's free on Wednesdays, by the way. And you just look in each other's eyes and you reconnect instead of having that thing buzzing and tweeting and demanding your attention and distracting you. Do a detox. Real practical, take time every day for a one-minute hug. That is an awkwardly long time to hug someone, especially if you're from Minnesota. (laughs) But as you do that, there are hormones and chemicals and synapses that will start firing and there is stress that is released it's really super healthy for you 
And maybe you're like, this person is driving me crazy. Just hug them for one minute. Your spouse, I'm talking, not, okay? <laughs> Guy, guys, Mike, I don't know. Don't be coming up to me after church. <laughs> you get the two pats and that's it. Okay. <laughs> but, but work that one-minute hug into each day as a husband and wife. Have that 10-minute conversation before the workday starts. You might have to set the alarm a little bit earlier just to talk about the plans for the day so you're in sync and you're not just two strangers sharing the same roof. And then at the end of that workday, have that 10-minute de-stressing conversation where you just listen and empathize. And you can whine about stuff. Just give it 10 minutes. How was work today? Oh, it was another day at work. You wouldn't believe what he did today. What about the kids? Oh, they were horrible hellions as usual. Just get it out. And then probably hug each other again at that point. And then stop your griping and complaining and you had your 10 minutes. But that de-stressing 10-minute conversation is really healthy. And then as Paul says, pray together. Take some time. He says here in verse 5, do not deprive one another. He's talking about sexual intimacy if you missed it except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Why? That you may devote yourselves to prayer. I think it's really a reminder to husbands and wives, wait a minute, what were we each created for again? Oh yeah, to glorify God. Let's just take a break from one another and together let's focus on strengthening and enhancing the intimacy that we each have with our Father. Let's pray together. Let's devote ourselves. Let's fast so that we're not living by our appetites and what our belly wants, but we're living to build up the spiritual man, the spiritual woman within us for this agreed-upon period of time. And then when we come back together, let's practice sexual holiness in the ways that we relate to one another. And there is the then-come-together part. Okay, we don't just prolong this, you know, like two weeks later. No, I'm still praying, honey. but for a set period of time and then come together because, you know, sexual intimacy in marriage, it does reflect your loving commitment to your spouse. So if there's days when you're like, yeah, I'm just not feeling it, not, not interested, there, there is that part of it, but it also produces that loving commitment to one another. That's how the Creator designed it. And so if the emotions have been waning and the sparkle is gone and the sexual intimacy has decreased between you, one of the ways to fix that is by increasing your sexual intimacy with one another. And so have that part of coming together. That act of becoming one flesh actually helps you become one flesh. So yes, your pastor's telling you to have more sex. If you're married. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. (laughs) Long, awkward pause. Please finish that sentence. Okay. Now, last week we did get into the rest of chapter 7. There's some very clear instructions for those of you who are in that period of life, that calling of celibacy and singleness. So that's where Paul goes in the rest of chapter 7. It's online if you didn't get to hear it last week. This has been a a message to married couples about 
sexual intimacy. And there's tools and instructions that God has for you if you're in that place of singleness right now. We've all been there. We will all be there if we live long enough. So you're not alone in this calling to celibacy, to singleness. Whether you are pre-marriage, whether you're divorced or widowed, uh, that's a life stage that we all pass through at some point in life. And God is, is not unaware of that. In fact, it's a high calling that he has for you in this season of life. Today we are going to remember our Lord's sacrifice. We're going to remember and commemorate and celebrate the risen Savior, the one whose resurrection gives us hope for today and for all of our tomorrows, including our eternity. So if you are a believer, if you're a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ, whether or not you're a member of this church, we invite you to celebrate together with us. Maybe today you're coming in, you're like, I heard the pastor was talking about sex. I was curious. I'm not a follower of Jesus. If that's the case, we invite you to, to observe as we take communion now and then to have a conversation with me or with one of the pastors or elders after church. We'd like you to know how to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior so that today is the day that you make that choice to follow the path that he has for you. Why don't we stand together? The worship team is going to come. Let's give thanks. And then I'm going to uh, re- release you to go to these tables by each of the exits and take those communion elements and then we'll return to our seats and remember our Lord's sacrifice together. God, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for your good design. We thank you that you are the author of all life, that you've created us for your glory, that you've created us primarily for intimacy with you, and you've enabled us to experience the joy of reflecting that intimacy in our relationship with a husband or a wife. God, we pray that we would, in our marriages, show the kind of love that Christ has for the church, that we would show the kind of willing submission that the Son voluntarily offers to the Father in the ways we love, the ways that we practice intimacy, the ways that our sexual being is demonstrated. Lord, our world needs a picture of sexual holiness. There's so many distorted images out there. There's so much destruction and pain when it comes to this topic, so many lives that are destroyed. Pray, God, that you would help us to make a difference in our world, first of all, by having healthy marriages. Secondly, by speaking up for those who are downtrodden, by being a place of reconciliation and hope for those whose lives have been destroyed in this area. Place of healing. Place, Lord, where your resurrection life really impacts all aspects of who we are. So today we give you thanks and praise. We thank you for your sacrifice, which we remember now as we take communion in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.